Good evening. Psalm 55 this evening, as was read just a moment ago by Dr. Schrader, Psalm 55 in your copy of the Holy Scriptures. Anytime we approach a psalm, we begin by looking to the superscription of the psalm to gain an understanding of its authorship and to learn of the occasion for its writing. In this case, we are told that Psalm 55 is a mass skill or a contemplation of David, but it doesn't tell us the occasion for its writing. So then we must lean on Bible scholars and do a bit of educated speculation ourselves to help us pair this psalm with an event in the life of David that may have been the background for its, its writing. Now it's generally agreed then that Psalm 55 points to a circumstance in David's life when he suffered a bitter betrayal. And although we can't be 100% certain, Bible scholars suggest that Psalm 55 may have been written, born out of a bitter betrayal that David suffered in 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 18. So then before we actually study Psalm 55, I would have you turn to 2 Samuel chapter number 15. We'll begin there in 2 Samuel 15. 2 Samuel chapters 15 to 18 tells us of a time when David's trusted advisor Ahithophel betrayed David by partnering with David's son Absalom to overthrow David as king. 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 18 may be the occasion for David's contemplation in Psalm 55. And so follow David's experience in 2 Samuel verse chapter 15 beginning in verse number 1. After this it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right. But there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. It sounds like a politician to me. David's son, Absalom, as a politician, saying, Vote for me. I'll make all of the wrongs right. And vote for me. I'll make your life better. Verse number five, and so it was whenever anyone came near to bow down to him that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. This is exactly what happens when politicians glad hand everyone at the state fair and promise every special interest group with a new entitlement program and the idea is to win the hearts and to win the minds of of the people whether by merit or by manipulation. Verse seven, now it came to pass after 40 years. Now there's a textual variant here. Your Bible might say four years. It's a a complicated study of, of textual criticism and the Septuagint and the Hebrew language but uh, there's a variant there. Absalom says to the king, please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow when I dwelt at Geshur in Sirius, saying, if the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. Sure, Absalom, if you believe that, I have a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. You understand? Verse nine, and the king said to him, go in peace, 
So he arose and went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom reigns in Hebron. Now remember that David began his reign as king of Israel in Hebron. For seven and a half years, David first reigned from Hebron, not Jerusalem. Verse 11, and with Absalom went 200 men invited from Jerusalem and they went along innocently, did not know anything. Then Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, from Gilho, while he offered sacrifices and the conspiracy grew strong for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. Now a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. Of course, we learn that back in verse number six. So David, verse 14, so David said to all his servants who are with him at Jerusalem, arise, let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, we are your servants, ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. Then the king went out with all his household after him, but the king left 10 women, concubines, to keep the house. Now jump with me to verse 30. Verse 30, so David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and went as he went up. And he and his, had his head covered and went barefoot. This is a gesture to demonstrate the depth of King David's despair. And the people who were with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went up. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Folks, the bitter betrayal of David is really twofold at this point. First is David's son, Absalom. However, I suspect that David understood or expected that Absalom would rebel. David probably wasn't surprised that Absalom would turn against him and make a power play for the throne. There might have been indicators along the way and certainly among the ancients this was not uncommon for a successive generation to turn on their fathers or their grandfathers, the betrayal of Absalom. But then secondly, there's the betrayal of David's counselor Ahithophel. Cheetah had to chapter 16, verse 23. Chapter 16, verse 23, now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. Ahithophel was the, was the wise sage of the day. He was the elder statesman of the day. And everyone listened to Ahithophel. But Ahithophel is now no longer counseling King David. He's counseling David's son Absalom in the worst of ways. How is Ahithophel betraying David, turning against David? Look back a a few verses and we'll read what Ahithophel did. This is back now in chapter uh, 16. Let's pick up in verse 15. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem. Ahithophel is with him, with Absalom. Verse 20. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give advice as to what we should do. 
Verse 21, Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines whom he has left to keep the house and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred by your father. Then the hands of all who are with you will be strong. So they pitched a tent for Absalom at the top of the house and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Ahithophel's counsel to Absalom was to take his father's concubines as his own because in the ancient world, taking another king's wives as one's own was the ultimate insight, the ultimate claim to the throne and, and a demonstration that you have overthrown the regime. It was the, the despicable act of conquering one's enemy. And Ahithophel counseled David to overthrow his father. I'm sorry, Ahithophel counseled Absalom to overthrow his father David in this way. And sadly, this bitter betrayal should not have been a surprise to King David. This should have been expected by David for after David's sin with Bathsheba, God warned David that this very thing would happen. Turn back to chapter 12. Just a few pages away, back to chapter 12. After David's sin with Bathsheba, the prophet Nathan confronted him. Chapter 12, chapter 12, verse 11, reads like this. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and you shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly, David, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. And so Absalom took Ahithophel's counsel, his advice in 2 Samuel 16. He committed this immorality in a wicked coup, but it didn't end there. Go with me to chapter 17 now, 2 Samuel 17. Moreover, on top of all of this, Ahithophel says to Absalom, he's counseling Absalom and giving him advice. Chapter 17, verse 1, now let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and weak and make him afraid. And all the people who are with him will flee and I will strike only the king. Then I will bring back all the people to you. When all return except the man whom you seek, all the people will be at peace. And the saying pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Folks, this horrific account in 2 Samuel 15, 16, and 17 is perhaps the substance of David's contemplation in Psalm 55. Now turn with me back to Psalm 55. We know the shepherd boy David faced the threat of lions and bears. We know as a young man, David faced the the threat of the, the giant Goliath and then, of course, King Saul. After becoming king, David faced the threat of enemy nations and even now this coup by his own son to seize the throne. And consequently, David was no stranger to fear. And in Psalm 55, he begins by describing his fear. That's number one, David's fear described. David's fear described. Now, we've read Psalm 55 already here in the the service, and we just read extended portions of 2 Samuel. But look again now at Psalm 55, and and allow me to, to read David's contemplation, beginning in, in verse number one. 
Give ear to my prayer, O God. Do not hide yourself from my supplication. Attend to me and hear me. I am restless in my complaint and moan noisily because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me, and in wrath they hate me. My heart is severely pained within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fearfulness and trembling have come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. So I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove, I would fly away and be at rest. Indeed, I would wander off and remain in the wilderness to escape. Selah. Think about these things. Now, there's two ways in which David described his condition. First, letter A, oppressed by the wicked. In verses 1 through 3, oppressed by the wicked. What do you do when the voice of an enemy and the oppression of the wicked leaves you restless? Verse number 2. All you can do is moan and groan noisily in your troubles. Verse number two, have, have you been there? Of course you have. We all have. We, we know Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your mind and hearts in Christ Jesus. But sometimes we can't even get to the point of prayer and supplication. Never mind the with thanksgiving part in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. And so we groan and we moan noisily, as David is doing here, fearful of the circumstance around him. But what does Romans chapter 8 promise us? Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And even in the diligent practice of prayer, we may still feel overwhelmed. Have you ever been there? David is oppressed by the wicked. He's crying out to the Lord, moaning and groaning noisily. But yet he's still overwhelmed, letter B. He's overwhelmed by the horror, letter B. David's condition, he's oppressed by the wicked... He's trying to pray his way through or pray his way out, but he's overwhelmed by the horror of it all, and he describes his condition there in verses 4 through 7, as I just read. Now, what do we normally do when we are overwhelmed in a horrible situation or a horrific situation or a horrendous situation? When we are overwhelmed by this horror, what do we do? We want to make it stop. We want to eliminate the pain. We want to escape from the situation. In fact, sometimes our fear is so overwhelming that we think that we would do better anywhere other than where we're at. You see, send me to the wilderness. The wilderness must be better than my own current circumstance. But folks, the wilderness is not a place that anyone wants to remain. Verse number seven there, he says, indeed, I would wander off and remain in the wilderness. Now think about that for a moment. Do you really want to go to the wilderness? The wilderness is the place where there's no food or water. The wilderness is the the place where there's no shelter from the sun in the day and there are dangers in the night. It's irrational to want to flee to the wilderness. But in our fear and in our pain, we become a bit irrational, don't we? So don't be deceived into thinking that you can escape a threatening circumstance. Rather know that God is with you. You might jot in the margin of your notes there, Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 3. Isaiah 43, 1 through 3. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, and he who formed you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. 
I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And how many times through the course of of history has God assured his people, fear not, for I am with you. But in David's case at this point, he, he doubles down and things go from bad to worse. After he took a selah moment, you see it there in verse number seven, he, he pauses and, and that notation suggests that we, we think about this for a moment. But things go from bad to worse, he doubles down in verse eight, I would hasten my escape from the windy storm and the tempest. In verse seven, he says, I, I think I want to go to the wilderness, get me out of here. He thinks about it for a moment. He says, yeah, you, you know, in fact, I, I, I want to go there as soon as possible. And the more David thought of it, he didn't want simply relief from his fear and pain. He, he also now wants revenge. Verse number nine, destroy, O Lord, and divide their tongues for I have seen violence and strife in the city day and night. They go around on its walls. Iniquity and trouble are also in the midst of it. Destruction is in its midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from its streets. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal. If you can picture the psalmist pointing his finger my companion and my acquaintance, we took sweet counsel together. We walked to the house of God in the, in the throng. Let death seize them. Let them go down alive into hell. For wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. Number two, David's fury. His fury is identified. His fear is described, oppressed by the wicked over overwhelmed by the horror, and now his fury is identified. And David's language in these verses qualifies this as an imprecatory prayer, not uncommon in the Psalms, an imprecatory prayer. Now, to imprecate means to invoke a curse upon one's enemies. And David, other psalmists as well, prayed to God to judge their enemies as they were working contrary to the revealed purposes of God. And, and so, of course, we always ask ourselves, is it appropriate for us today to pray imprecatory prayers of judgment upon those who are against us? Now, I, I certainly think that we should pray for God to judge righteously in every matter. I think that's appropriate to do. However, Jesus called us to pray for our enemies in a different way. And there in his Sermon on the Mount, he said, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And so I would caution us against praying imprecatory prayers, specifically for personal offenses. We can always pray for God's righteousness to reign and for his righteousness to rule and for his judgment to be swift per his will. But I caution you with the imprecatory prayers. But what's of interest to us this evening is whether David is referring to the events we read earlier in 2 Samuel 15 through 18. If David's fury is directed toward Absalom and Ahithophel, 
And it's very, very likely, and to be fair, David's fury toward Absalom and Ahithophel seems justified. And we might share the, the same sentiment toward one who wrongs us. But, but perhaps if you can think of, of an occasion in which you've been betrayed. You've been kicked in the teeth. You've been stabbed in the back. Perhaps there's an occasion when your coworker or your neighbor or your family member wrongs you. And so our natural sense of justice really calls for some form of retribution to them. And who can blame us for that? In fact, you, you might have the sympathy of every one of your counselors as well. But after what they did to you, you say, Pastor, if you knew what they did to me, they deserve to burn. Okay? But thinking of this ancient context... We are quick to see the speck in the other person's eye, but we need to be careful not to miss the beam in our own eye. Turn your notes over and consider what Bible commentator Derek Kidner wrote. We don't know exactly when this happened in David's life, if it was before or after his sin with Bathsheba and the cover-up murder of Uriah. Yet the connection of David's words here with his sin against Uriah is stunning. Let's make the connection in David's life. What David was unwittingly describing in this moving passage was also the essence of his own treachery to Uriah, one of his staunchest friends. Okay, so follow this now. Uriah was one of David's mighty men, and yet David betrayed him. And so if we're tempted to pray an imprecatory prayer against those who have wronged us, remember that someone might have just cause to pray an imprecatory prayer against you for the wrong that you've done to them. That's a sobering thought. And so I would caution us in that way. Now, in studying the Psalms, it's always important to trace the development of the psalmist's thinking. And in this case, David is transparent He's honest, even to the point of his own deprecation, but he comes full circle to a right response to the circumstances of his life. Psalm 55, verse 19. I'm sorry, verse 16. Let's start in verse 16. As for me, I will call upon God, and the Lord shall save me. Evening and morning and at noon I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. He has redeemed my soul and peace from the battle that was against me. For there were many against me. God will hear and afflict them. Even so, he who abides from of old, Selah. Stop and think about this for a moment. Contemplate this for a moment. Why would the eternal God, he who abides from old, verse 19, hear David's prayer and redeem David's soul, verse 18, or humble David's enemies, verse 17. Why would the eternal God do that? Think about that for a moment, Selah. Because the answer now is in the second part of verse 19. Because they do not change, therefore they do not fear God. And so what's going on here is there's a contrast that's being presented between David's prayerful trust in God and the wicked's refusal to change even after God afflicts them in verse number 19. They refuse to fear God and even after God humbles them there in verse number 19. 
Verse 20 and 21 again describes the betrayals, the betrayer's betrayal. Verse, verse 20. He has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. He has broken his covenant. The words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, that they were drawn swords. And so we understand David's fury. But then David's faith is activated. And that's number three. David's faith is activated by the instruction in verse 22, and we're not sure who is speaking. Is this one of David's counselors speaking to him? Is this David speaking to himself? But it's clear that someone is is speaking to, to us, the reader. Verse 22, cast your burden on the Lord, and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. What does Psalm 55, verse number 22 sound like? Does it sound to you like 1 Peter 5, verse 7? Cast your cares on the Lord, for he cares for you. And I think that this is great evidence of faith. This is the action item of our faith. You see, hard circumstances are common to man. And opposition and enemies are against us. So what do we do? We, by faith, we cast our care on the Lord. You see, it isn't about the absence of trouble or trial in our lives, but rather it's what we do when trouble and trial come our way. Verse 23, which you, O God, shall bring them down to the pit of destruction. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. And what a strong statement of faith. In spite of all of the hurt that David has suffered, all of the betrayal from his own son, from his his counselor Ahithophel, he makes the statement of faith. And so we have David's fear, David's fury, and now David's faith. And I must confess that that outline isn't original, entirely original with me. It was G. Campbell Morgan who was twice the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, England. He, he mentored then his own successor, whose name you may have heard of, Martin Lloyd-Jones. But at any rate, G. Campbell Morgan noted the movement in this psalm from fear to fury to faith. And, and, and this is what he says. It's there on the back of your notes. Fear leads only to desire to flee. Get me out of my situation, Lord. Send me to the wilderness. I bet the wilderness is better than my current circumstance. That's the fear, the desire to flee. Fury only emphasizes the consciousness of, what, of the wrong that's been done. And you may even obsess over it over and over again. I've been wronged. I've been cheated. I've been betrayed. And I'm angry. Let me rehearse that for you again. I've been wronged. I've been cheated. I've been betrayed. Do you all know what I've suffered? That's the fury. But then faith alone creates courage. That's what G. Campbell Morgan says. And in life, we find the courage to move forward, even when we've been hurt over and over again, because we trust in the Lord. Now, whatever happened to David and to Absalom and to Ahithophel, What's the rest of the story? We've got to go back to 2 Samuel. Will you go there with me? 2 Samuel, at this point now, we're in chapter 17. And allow me to to do some reading again, reviewing some of what we've already read. 
Chapter 17, verse number one. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, now let me choose 12,000 men. I will arise, pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and weak. Make him afraid, and all the people who are with him will flee, and I will strike only the king. Then I will bring back all the people to you. When all return except the man whom you seek, all the people will be at peace. And the saying pleased Absalom and the elders of, of Israel. Uh, verse number five, then Absalom said, now call Hushai the archite also and let us hear what he says too. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom spoke to him saying, Ahithophel has spoken in this manner. Shall we do as he says? If not, speak up. So Hushai said to Absalom, the advice that Ahithophel has given is not good at this time. Hmm. Verse 14, jump there. So Absalom and all the men of Israel said the advice of Hushai the archite is better than the advice of Ahithophel. For the Lord has purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster upon Absalom. Now, this is an answer to King David's prayer back in chapter 15, verse 31. We read it a few moments ago. David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And, and, and in fact, God is answering David's prayer here now. We'll look at verse 22, chapter 17, verse 22. So David and all the people who were with him arose, crossed over the Jordan by morning light. Not one of them was left who had not gone over the Jordan. Now when Ahithophel saw that, his advice was not followed. And, and if we had read all of the narrative in, in detail, perhaps we could track the story better. But Ahithophel saddles a donkey, arose and went to his house, to his city. Then he put his household in order and hanged himself and died and he was buried in his father's tomb. Folks, I don't know how old Ahithophel was when he took his life. But if you remember what we read just a moment ago in Psalm 55, verse 23, David wrote, But you, O God, shall bring them down to the pit of destruction. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men shall not live out half their days. Could it be that Ahithophel's life was prematurely taken at his own hand, perhaps half of his expected lifespan. Ahithophel. Now what about Absalom? Turn the page to chapter 18, 2 Samuel 18. Let's pick up in verse number 6. This may be familiar to you. So the people went out into the field of battle against Israel. And the battle was in the, wor- the woods of Ephraim, And the people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David, and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside. The woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Then Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. The mule was under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree, and his head caught in the terebinth. So he was left hanging between heaven and earth, And the mule which was under him went on. And Absalom died in a freak accident, we might say. But God delivered David from those who would betray him. Folks, there is no glory in any of these things. There's no glory in David's survival. In fact, if you look at 2 Samuel 18, verse 33... Then the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate 
and he wept. And as he went, he said thus, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Folks, what a painful ending to a bitter story. What, what do you do with this? We could grieve on, on so many levels, but back in Psalm 55, just by way of conclusion here this evening, in Psalm 55, David transparently pours out his contemplation, his fear, his fury, but then he ends with the faith, verse 23, but I will trust in you. And in all of this, one verse that really leaps off the page at me, perhaps you would highlight it, verse 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he shall sustain you. Well, if we cast our cares on the Lord for he cares for us, how do we know that he cares for us? How could God care for me about the betrayal that I've suffered? Well, there was a time when Jesus was betrayed as well. Do you remember that? Jesus, of course, was betrayed by a close friend, Judas. I would submit to you that Jesus knows what you're going through because he's been there and he's, he's done that. In fact, I've written there at the top of your notes, we can cast our care upon the Lord because he cares for us. That's Psalm 55, verse 22. That's 1 Peter 5, verse 7. He cares for us because he suffered in the same ways that we suffer. And so in your hurt, in your betrayal, as you've been wronged, you go to the Lord with your fear, with your fury, with your faith, you cast your care upon him and you purpose in your heart to trust him because he sees and he knows and he has experienced the very same trials and temptations that we have in his own incarnation. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for recording these horrible things for us. They're instructive to us. And Lord, we grieve all of the circumstances of David and Absalom and Ahithophel, but Lord, they teach us to cast our cares upon you and to trust you. We know that our Lord Jesus Christ suffered betrayal by Judas. And so we cast our cares knowing that he cares for us, for the great friend that we have in Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would comfort and encourage the hearer this evening, the men and the women of Fourth Baptist Church in their personal circumstance to cast their care on you and trust you in it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.